Well, as we continue our study on royalty, noble living in a needy world, today we're going to be looking at the Beatitudes. We're going to look at the first section of a sermon that Jesus himself preached to his disciples, and I believe to more than those 12 that he had called to follow him, I believe to a, a hillside of those who had began to gather. Uh, Tina and I were fortunate to uh, travel to Israel not long after we were married and gather together on a hillside that is called the Mount of Beatitudes. It's on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And as we were gathered there with other believers, it, uh, enjoying the beauty of that place, the beauty of that moment, we could think back and imagine what it would have been like to have been there with Jesus and to hear Him preach a message that seems at sometimes very sweet, very articulate, very poetic, and at other times almost impossible to live by. And as we begin to look in our series on Matthew's Gospel at the Sermon on the Mount, my prayer is that you will be challenged, that you will be equipped to be kingdom citizens, to live as nobility in a needy world, a needy world that needs to see noble living, but a needy world that needs to know how they can become nobility as well, how they can be treated like royalty. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. It's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. It begins with this list of Beatitudes or List of blessings. Thank you for standing as we open the Word of God together. I believe it reveals the King's delight. What the King, what Jesus blesses, it's the heart of true nobility. And it's not what we naturally think when we think of royalty. It says, "...and seeing the multitudes, He went up," speaking of Jesus, "...up on a mountain." When he was seated with his disciples, they came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Father, I pray that you will help us to understand how these blessings, how these beatitudes, how finding delight in you can be accomplished in our lives today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And you can be seated. A fellow was talking with his friend one day and he was bragging on his wife and he said, my wife treats me like royalty. Oh, she's such a blessing. She cooks me three spectacular meals every day. She massages my feet and my back every day. She keeps our home 
immaculate. You wouldn't believe it. She is always romantic and sweet-spirited. And I'm just telling you, she treats me like royalty. And his friend said, man, what kind of wife do you have? And he said, oh, I can't explain it. My wife is an angel. The guy, his, his, his buddy wasn't too bright, and he thought about it for a moment, and he said, oh, an angel. He said, you're lucky, my wife's still living. <laughs> well, I don't know if you can say, ladies or men, if you always feel that you're treated like royalty. I know that I have already mentioned my anniversary coming up, and I am blessed, and then some. But I don't know that in this life we ever feel like somebody just always treats us like royalty, but I'll tell you something. Jesus says there is a way that you can find the King's delight. There is a Spirit that God blesses and finds favor in. This Sermon on the Mount, as we begin to wade into the the depths of this great message, is one of the most admired and scrutinized and dissected sermons ever preached. Presidents quote it. Leaders of other religions quote it. Even Mahatma Gandhi thought it was one of the greatest messages, even though he was not a Christian. thought it was one of the greatest messages ever proclaimed. Judges refer to this sermon. Christians refer to it. Unbelievers have quoted it and often misquoted it or taken passages out of context just from this one sermon. There are lots of ways of interpreting this message when it seems hard to grasp. The the medieval church, and I'm glad that we're not part of this particular group today, but most of the medieval church said during the Dark Ages that these are the standards for clergy. (laughs) This is the way that the preachers, the priests, and the monks, they're supposed to live according to the Sermon on the Mount, but nobody else is expected to live according to this standard. Liberals, uh, Theological liberals have come along and said this is a paradigm for the social gospel because if we would all just be nice like Jesus is asking us to be, then the world would be a better place. And I imagine it would, but there's much more to it than that. Luther, much like the Apostle Paul sees in Romans the law in the Old Testament, Luther saw it as an impossible standard to lift, uh, to lift before the people to say, nobody can attain this, so it should drive us to our knees in repentance and seeking the grace of God. And modern evangelicals today say that it's a picture of the millennial kingdom, that when Christ comes again and establishes His kingdom, this is what the kingdom will look like. And to be honest with you, I prefer a combination of the last two. Luther saying this is a standard that's impossible to live by, It will be demonstrated in the Millennial Kingdom, but at the same time, I believe, because of Romans 8-4 saying the righteous requirements of the law are fully met in us when we walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh, I believe that it's, it's what God calls kingdom citizens to, but like Luther said, it's impossible to attain the Sermon on the Mount. You can't experience it. You can't live this life in your own strength. Mankind can't demonstrate these actions without the power of God and the Spirit of God living inside of them. So God is showing us with these Beatitudes 
a heart of true nobility that we can experience now. We don't have to wait to the millennial kingdom, and we don't have to say it's some impossibility to attain, but it's something He wants us to begin to experience now. It is a process that we enter into becoming Christ-like. We're being conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus, Romans chapter 8 says. And so that's what the Beatitudes are all about. Getting our hearts prepared for the character and the nobility that God wants to establish in us. In chapter 3 we saw that Jesus came onto the scene, became very public with His ministry, and, and we see that the kingdom is here, and the kingdom is is now, yes, there is an already not yet aspect to the kingdom, but God is already establishing His kingdom in the hearts of men and women and boys and girls who put their faith and trust in Him. He is the King of hearts, so to speak. And in chapter 4, He shows us how to get victory over the enemy in this world. He rebukes the devil. And in chapter 5, the Beatitudes that this sermon begins with, the Sermon on the Mount, basically says, get your hearts ready. Get your hearts ready for something awesome. Get your hearts ready for God to do a mighty work in your life. And I know that this morning as I preach that there are people that are struggling with various hurts and habits and hang-ups and things that drag you down and things that rob you from God's best. Things that hold you back from getting in on what God has prepared for those who love Him. And I'm not just talking about the millennial kingdom. I'm not just talking about heaven. I'm talking about what God wants to do in your life right now that is sweet and wonderful and awesome if we will begin to allow Him to work. And so he begins this sermon not by, not by dealing with all of these standards that seem so far out there. Well, I could never do that. I could never love my enemy. I could never live a life above the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. I can't be the salt of the earth and light of the world. That's just not me. I'm not there yet. I'm, I'm not quite ready for God to do the spectacular in my life. These Beatitudes reveal to us how to get ready for God to do a mighty work. And I want us to, to kind of see three categories of these Beatitudes. The, the first Beatitude in a category by itself is telling us just to be real. The second category... The next three Beatitudes tell us we need to be repentant. And then the final four all have to do with being redemptive. And so let's begin with the first Beatitude, which is kind of in a category by itself, and that is be real. If we want to get ready for God to do something awesome in our lives, something transformational and revolutionary in our homes, in our community, in our world, we need to, as Christians, realize the starting point is just to be real. We need to get real with God. So he says... Blessed, it's more than just happy. Some translations say happy. It has to do with finding favor. It's the king finding delight in you. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That seems a little paradoxical. If I'm poor in spirit, I'm not happy. I'm not blessed. Well, the poor in spirit refer to those who recognize who they are in, in light of who he is. And so we're poor in spirit when we recognize who we are in light of who He is. God is holy. God is transcendent. God is awesome. God loves unconditionally. And when we realize that we have sinned and come short of His glory, we, we come to a place where we're poor in spirit and we simply get real and say, you know what? My mama may think I'm pretty awesome. They may brag on me at work. 
I may be the teacher's pet at school, but in light of who God is, I realize I'm not all that. It's being real with where we are and who we are. Jesus was surrounded by social and spiritual outcasts. They were not the wealthy citizens of Rome, nor were they the religious crowd of Jerusalem at this point on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. They're just kind of good old country folks that were considered the social and religious and spiritual outcasts. And Jesus was explaining to His disciples, it's easier for them to get it. It's easier for them to understand what it means to be real. They're poor in spirit already. Coming to the place where we realize we're spiritually bankrupt without Christ and what He's done for us. Too many of the religious crowd, the high society crowd of that day and today, in Rome and in Jerusalem, would never embrace the brokenness needed to be poor in spirit. It could be that they have nothing to do with the church today because they say, well, that church is a crutch for needy people and, and they fail to be poor in spirit and recognize their need because we're all needy people. Or it could be that they're active in church, but church is nothing more than a social gathering. It's a place where people kind of say, hey, to be in right standing with the community, I need to have the status of being a good church-going Christian. But they've never come to a place where they just get real with who they are. I pray that Trinity will always be a church that when we come in the doors of this church, when we gather together in small groups and in large groups, we can just be real with each other. I am thankful as a pastor to be part of a church to where me and my wife and my kids can just be real. That the pastor doesn't have to feel like he's living in a glass house. We don't have to feel like that we're better than anybody else. Because believe me, we know we're not. But we can just, with the community of faith, with the people of God, say we love Jesus. And we love you. And you love Jesus. And you love us. And we can come together as family. We just be real. That's the wonderful thing about family. We know each other. We love each other anyway. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. Just to be real. Realize in, in His eyes we're not all that no matter what we think we might have attained to in life. Poor in spirit. Letting things go that don't really mean that much anyway. So that we're free to receive what He has for us. I, I picture how in the jungles they would catch these, these little monkeys. Some of you have heard this story but they would secure these jars in a particular place, jars that, 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 a, that a monkey could stick his hand into, and they would put a shiny object, maybe a coin or something in the jar, and, and the monkey would take hold of the coin, and with its fist balled up, it couldn't pull his hand back out of the jar, and the captors would come and capture the little monkeys because they refused to let go of what they had in their hand, even though it was worthless to them. And so many Christians are like that. We, we refuse to be poor in spirit and say, Lord, I have nothing and I am nothing so that I can be filled with all that You are. We're holding on to things that are not valuable that keep us trapped, keep us held back. And we say, look what I've got, look what I've got. And it is meaningless spiritually. And we fail to recognize our spiritual bankruptcy. Uh, Tony Wood wrote a song that was sung by Chris Sly, who was a, a Christian who took a stand on American Idol years ago. Here are just some of the words of this song. It says, I've seen just enough of the quick buys of the best lies to know how prodigals can be drawn away. 
I know how I can stray and how fast my heart, heart could change. And then he sings this chorus, Empty me of the selfishness inside, every vain ambition and the poison of my pride. And any foolish thing my heart holds to, Lord, empty me of me so I can be filled with You. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. To say, Lord, empty me of me so I can be filled with You. Have you come to a place where you say, I'm finding the King's delight because I'm poor in spirit. And I realize that I can't strut myself socially or religiously. I can only humble myself before God and say, empty me of me that I can be filled with You. Now the second category has to do with the next three Beatitudes. We need to come to that place in life where we can be real, and then we need to, in that reality, be repentant. Be repentant. This is what I believe that, that, that Luther was on to hundreds of years ago. That we, we read the Sermon on the Mount, and we realize we don't measure up, but we can come to a place of repentance, turning from sin and self and trusting in Christ alone. And so in verse 4, and by the way, verses 4, 5, and 6 kind of make a U-turn. Verse 4, we're coming to a stop in one direction. We're making an acknowledgement. Verse 5 is kind of the crux of that U-turn. And then in verse 6, we're headed in a new direction. That's a beautiful thing about the way these Beatitudes are laid out in order. And so in verse 4, it says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. They, we're moving in a direction. We come to a place of brokenness. And we're broken over our sin. We're broken over the effects of our sin. We're even broken over the effects of other people's sin that it has on their lives and on our lives. It's a place of mourning, of brokenness over sin and sin's effect on you and on this world. And he says, get ready because in that brokenness, in the acknowledgement of that brokenness, you're going to be comforted. Listen to these words from Psalm 32. Psalm 32 says, Blessed is he who transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. That's a beatitude. That's a blessing when you've experienced this. But what happened when he kept silent? Verse 3. And this is, by the way, this is David's prayer after committing adultery with Bathsheba when he was com uh, confronted by Nathan the prophet for his sexual immorality. He says, when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all day long. And day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Do you realize when you claim to know and love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ and you get caught up in sin, in some kind of sinful bondage, that it not only affects you spiritually, but the spiritual impact begins to affect you physically? That your body, your spirit, begin to somehow be in sync and it has an effect on how you even feel physically. Sin takes a toll not only on the heart and the mind, but on the body itself. And so David was experiencing that. He was going through what we would call a deep season of depression as a result of not confessing his sin. And by the way, all depression is not related to sin, but sin can always lead to this. And then in verse 5, he says, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my heart. 
For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. I am redeemed. He's experienced this place of brokenness. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Verse 5 shows that, like I said, it kind of in the crux of that U-turn. This is what I believe is the place of conversion. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. These will be the kingdom citizens in the millennium, and the new heaven and the new earth one day when the Lord returns. But meekness refers to that submission to the Lordship of Christ. The word meek, we know it's a fruit of the Spirit. Meekness does not mean weakness. So many times when we hear the word meekness, we say, man, I've got to be meek. That means I've got to be weak. I've just got to let everybody kind of run over me in life. I've got to be weak. I can't walk with my head held high. I've got to be meek. That's not what meekness is. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength under control. Strength under control. It's kind of like, you know, I know about half of us will find ourselves at the Calmer Christmas Parade every year, right? Not exactly the biggest parade in northeast Georgia, but it's still fun. And one of the amazing things, maybe you go to the 4th of July Parade in Colbert or whatever, and we're like, man, how many, how many cars can there be in a parade? Here's the amazing thing about those cars. It's to have the patience to drive a Corvette in a parade at about three miles per hour. Unbelievable meekness. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength under control. Who do we put in the driver's seat? Who is in control? See, we're submitted to the Lordship of Christ. You give yourself to His control and your efforts are given to serving Him. For by grace are we saved through faith. That's not of ourselves. It's God's gift. Not by works, or we'd be bragging about it. Then it goes on to say we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, do good works. We're we're saying, Lord, I'm Yours. I'm surrendered to Your control. Meekness is is acknowledging His Lordship in our life. And I believe when we come to that place where we're broken over our sin and confessing our sin and acknowledging His Lordship, that means we have come to that place of conversion where we're putting our trust in Him, giving our life to Him, and we can experience great things ahead. I remember back in 1993... I took a class, and of course, being at a Southern Baptist seminary, I was required to take a class on the Southern Baptist Convention, which meant as part of that class, we had to attend the Southern Baptist Convention's annual meeting. And that year, it just happened to be in Houston, Texas. It meant we had to come up with money to get there and all kinds of things. And, and I had a friend who said, man, I know how we can take care of your, your hotel expenses and, and, a lot of, and, and, and every expense that you're going to have while you're in Houston. He says, if you will just... Uh, go and and serve. And he told me about a man that I knew was very influential in the conservative uh, resurgence, returning to belief in biblical authority in our denomination. His name was Judge Paul Pressler. I've had him come preach here before. Some of you have met him. But he said, if you would be willing to go and serve at Judge Pressler's house, then your your lodging would be taken care of, your meals would be taken care of, you'll, you'll have a great time. And I thought, man, all my friends, they're kind of going, they're going to get a hotel room, They're going to kind of be on their own schedule. I'm going to work 
but hey, you know, if it'll pay my way, I think I'll do it. So, so in 1993, I went that summer for a week to Houston, Texas. I stayed in a mansion. I ate steak, brisket, barbecue, you name it. We uh, served all of the, the dignitaries and others who had come in from within and from outside of our denomination that came to be a part of this. We hosted them at his house when he needed somebody to go pick up his Jag. And I always wanted a Jag and never owned a Jag, but he said, need somebody to go pick up my Jag. Guess who got to drive a Jaguar around Houston, Texas? What happened? I submitted myself. I submitted myself as a servant and said, I can't pay my own way. I'll do whatever you ask me to do. And I lived like royalty, at least for a week. And that's the way the kingdom of God is. When, when we try to say, no, I'm going to be in charge of my life. I'm going to be the one that calls all the shots. We miss out on the wonderful things that God wants to expose us to. The devil tells this lie that it's better to be a ruler in hell than a servant in heaven. And nobody's ruling in hell, not even him. Jesus is the one that oversees the wrath of God. But in the kingdom of God, when we become a servant, we get in all of the best things. Meekness is strength under control. Surrender to the Lordship of Christ. Being a servant in the kingdom of God and getting in on all of the awesome benefits that come with that. And we sang of those 10,000 reasons, those benefits from Psalm 103 a little bit earlier. It's powerful to get in on what God has for you because you submit yourself to His kingship in your life. And then in verse 6, we're committed to a new pursuit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. It's, it's a new hunger. It's a new desire. It's a new direction. Now we're desiring to live holy rather than doing it out of drudgery. We're desiring to please Him. I've come to the place where I've been broken over my sin. I've in meekness made Him Lord in my life. Now I'm walking in a new direction, not because I have to, but because I want to. I, I'm, I'm trying to avoid the pitfalls of this life not out of drudgery, but out of desire. If I don't have a desire in my heart to live a holy life and a clean life before Him, that I need to go back and say, was I really broken over my sin? Did I really make Him the Lord in my life? Because He puts this new desire. If any man be in Christ, He's a new creation. Old things pass away. All things become new. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 17. We're committed to that new pursuit. Paul speaks of that pursuit in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, beginning with verse 7, he, he has just given his testimony and shared about his old life. He says, The things that were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul didn't say, man, I hate that i got to let go of these things. He said, man, it is a joy to let go of those things so that I can get in on what God has for me for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish. And that's a very kind word in the English language for the Greek word that was actually used there. That I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection 
the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I might attain to his resurrection. Paul says, I want to know him more. I want more of Jesus. I want to know him personally. I want to know him powerfully, the power of his resurrection. I want to know him passionately. I want to suffer in this life so that I might be more acquainted with the sufferings of Christ. And he goes on to say in verse 12, not that I have already attained or am already perfected. Paul said, I hadn't arrived. I'm not perfect yet. I'm perfect in position, but not in practice. But he says, I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. If you're struggling this morning and wondering, am I really a part of the kingdom? Am I really nobility? Have you come to the place where you were broken over sin and self and, and you trusted in His forgiveness, and in meekness made Him the Lord of your life, and now you're filled with a new desire to live pleasing to Him. And like Paul, you would say, sometimes I veer off the path, I'm not perfect, I haven't arrived, but I press on so that tomorrow I'll be more like Jesus than I was today, and the next day even more in love with Him than I am tomorrow. It's repentant, and it's a lifestyle of repentance. We constantly pull ourselves back to that desire to please Him. Have you made that turn? Do you continue to demonstrate that repentant heart in your life today? And then finally, this third category, be redemptive. We're to be real, we're to be repentant, and now we've got a new life we've embraced, we're to be redemptive. Now, this is for those who are really maturing in your faith. It takes a little while to begin to put these final four B attitudes in place but we're to be redemptive with our mercy. Verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Mercy means giving people better than what they deserve. Not giving them the evil they deserve. Not returning evil for evil, but treating people better than they deserve. How a, a Christian wins an unbeliever, even in our conversation, as Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11 says, a gentle answer turns away wrath, speaking to people better than they deserve to be spoken to. How a Christian wife wins her husband. It's that gracious spirit that Peter told the ladies to have if their husbands are unbelievers. Treating people better than they deserve to be treated. So we're redemptive. We're drawing people to Christ with our mercy. In verse 8, the next beatitude, we're redemptive with our motives. Redemptive with our motives. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You want to see God at work in this world? Become redemptive with your motives. When your heart is clean and you have this honesty that drives you and all that you do is just out there for everybody to see is for the glory of God, not for yourself. Not trying to be a people pleaser. Not trying to manipulate people to like you. But just saying, hey, I am here for the glory of God. I am what I am by the grace of God. My heart is clean before God. I'm not perfect, but I'll be honest about where I am. So we become redemptive, pure in heart with our motives. God gives us a ministry. Verse 9, we're to be redemptive with our ministry. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. So we come to a place where we're accepting that we're all called to be peacemakers, reconcilers, serving the Lord and His church as a unifier. One who 
does not bring division, but brings peace and unity within the body of Christ. And peace to others who need a relationship with Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, we mentioned verse 17 a moment ago, if any man be in Christ, is a new creation, old things pass away. In verse 19 in the same chapter, it says God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, and He has committed to us, that's me and you, He has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. He's called us on to a ministry of being peacemakers, of bringing about reconciliation. First of all, helping people to have a relationship with God, to be at peace with God, and then to help them have a relationship with others. We can only love others and bring peace to others when we have experienced peace from God. So blessed are the peacemakers, those who would help restore relationships in homes and in communities. Churches, not being divisive, not hurting the community of faith, not hurting the homes, but bringing peace into those situations, bringing reconciliation That's our ministry. So we're redemptive in mercy, redemptive in motives, redemptive with our ministry, and finally, we're redemptive. And this is perhaps the most difficult if there's anything that will measure us coming to a place where we're tasting real spiritual maturity. It's we're redemptive when we're mistreated. Am I redemptive when I'm mistreated? This is only by the grace of God. And yet, I know it's attainable because I have seen it in people that I would have never dreamed they could be so redemptive when they were mistreated. Verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But what do you do about those who persecute you? Then he says, Blessed are you, verse 11, when when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice. And be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus is going to explain in the Sermon on the Mount, you're to love your enemies and do good to those who do evil to you. So we're redemptive even when we're mistreated. Because God has given us the spirit of a peacemaker. And we're to reconcile relationships. We're to do all we can to make sure people are walking with God, getting along with one another in a way that demonstrates love and peace before God. It's such a powerful lesson to embrace here that it prepares us for God to do an awesome work. It prepares us for the rest of the story. It prepares us for this great sermon that we're going to get out into and look at all kinds of Uh, paradoxical truths that we would say, man, I can't wrap my mind around that. And we can't until we come to this place. Until we understand these Beatitudes. Until we can just be real about who we are, be repentant in our spirit, and make that U-turn, and be redemptive in our mercy, our motives, our ministry, and even when we're mistreated. I mentioned at the beginning, many of us have hurts, habits, and hang-ups. There's a wonderful ministry that was started as an alternative, a Christian, biblical-centered worldview approach to uh, an alternative to some of the 12-step programs that, that are out there. It's called Celebrate Recovery. Celebrate Recovery was designed to help those who are struggling with hurts that they can't let go of, habits and addictions of all kinds, and hang-ups, those things that just hold you back in life. 
And what they did with Celebrate Recovery is they took these Beatitudes, and each one of those Beatitudes came, became a step. A step to take you off the path to destruction and put you on the path to life. And if you need to be a part of a group like that, we can recommend one for you. But you don't have to be a part of one of those groups to put these principles in place. Today, right now, you can decide, I'm going to be real about who I am in the light of God. All that He is. I'm going to be repentant. And not only experience that, you turn once, but live a life of repentance. And then I'm going to be redemptive. And realize God has called me to whatever ministry team you might serve on in the church, wherever you might go to school, wherever you might work, you can be redemptive in your ministry, in your mercy, and even when you're mistreated in this life. Then you'll be ready. Ready for what God has in store for you. And my prayer, it's the prayer of a pastor's heart, it's the prayer of a friend's heart that would say, don't miss out on God's best. Breaks my heart. Breaks my heart to think that somebody in my family, somebody in my church, somebody in my community would settle for less than God's best. And it happens all the time because we're not ready. We haven't embraced these Beatitudes. Would you bow your heads with me? And-